0: I'm Shankar Vedantam, here to tell you about a great mystery. That mystery is you. As the host of a podcast called Hidden Brain, I explore big questions about what it means to be human. Questions like, where do our emotions come from? Why do so many of us feel overwhelmed by modern life? How can we better understand the people around us? Discover your hidden brain. Find us wherever you get your podcasts.
1: You're listening to Well Now, Slate's podcast on health and wellness. I'm Dr. Kavita Patel. And I'm Maya Feller. This week, we're tackling one of the biggest debates in the wellness space, diet culture. Diet culture is all around us and it's a reflection of so many of our social struggles around class, gender, and race. In a moment, we're going to talk to someone who's made it her mission to dismantle diet culture and seek out body liberation for both herself and all of us.
0: But before we do that, Maya, let's just talk you and me about the different ways diet culture has shown up in our lives. And I think that it would be fair to say that When I think of my first experience of diet culture, it was – honestly, I couldn't help but concentrate on the word die because that's how it felt. Every time I thought about a diet, which I – from the moment I think I went through puberty, I had always kind of felt like I should be on a diet because that's what society expects of many, especially people who identify as women – And every time I would engage in a diet, whether it was to go to prom and try to fit into a prom dress, I always came back to like, I felt like a part of me just would die a little bit. So my experience, the word culture didn't even enter into it because it just felt like torture, felt like denying myself something. And it really now I've grown to understand, it felt like I had to override just I would say, generations of eating patterns instead of trying to understand, like, what can I do around me to just make better choices
1: and not see it as a diet? What about you, Maya? I mean, Kavita, that resonates with me so much. I think when I was younger, I never even thought about the word culture. And I think the diet part was just so implicit. It was everywhere. It was like, all around us. And I think about being eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, and that every single one of my girlfriends was on a diet, talking about going on a diet or figuring out how to lose weight in some way, shape or form, whether or not it was, you know, through totally unacceptable measures, but it was normalized. And I think now as an adult, I look back at those previous behaviors that were massive red flags, yet everyone was doing it. And no one said, hey, kids, this is like the worst idea <laughs> possible. <laughs> you know, we were just praised for getting leaner. And now as an adult, I realize, wow, I was in the throes of it and had bought into every part of what it meant to quote unquote look good from a societal standard. And now I think I'm much more in the space of saying, you know, I want to accept my body as it is. And I definitely have to work every day to really say I am fine how I am.
0: Well, Maya, I think so many listeners will resonate with both of our stories. And over the years, we know that many people have tried to actually combat the toxic dynamics of diet culture. Everything we just talked about, people have tried desperately to figure out the antidote to that.
1: I agree, Kavita. So our next guest has been really holding the health and wellness industry to account for years. And in fact, she's made it her mission to... I would say call out and highlight the shortcomings and this harm that both of us have just discussed, specifically around diet culture. And she does such a nice thing that I appreciate. I feel like she talks about how it's damaged her and her own relationship with her body for years, but then she also provides that other part, which is the hope. What's the next step forward?
2: There was just a time in my life when I was so hard and so critical of myself. And not that I don't ever do that sometimes. I still do. But I'm so much better at it. But there is just something so special about knowing that you are worthy of every single thing that you want. And knowing that no matter how you look on any given day, it has no bearing on the person that you are. It just changes everything.
0: That's fitness instructor and educator Chrissy King after the break.
1: Welcome back. You're listening to Well Now from Slate. I'm Kavita Patel. And I'm Maya Feller. Our guest today is actively fighting against diet culture and the ways in which it really harms all of us. Chrissy King is a fitness instructor, speaker, and educator. Her recent book is called The Body Liberation Project How Understanding Racism and Diet Culture Helps Cultivate Joy and Build Collective Freedom. Chrissy, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So, Talk to us a little bit about how you actually define diet culture.
2: Sure. So I think when I speak about diet culture, I think in the simplest of forms, it's just like a set of principles that essentially uphold thinness as the way to be, right? It bases it on a desired body type. It defines certain foods as good and bad. It makes it almost seem like there's more a virtue to being a certain way or a certain body shape or a certain size. And overall, I think it just keeps us trapped in this cycle of always seeking to attain this thinner body or a smaller body or hyper-focus on the food we eat or the way we diet and exercise. And before I broke up with diet culture, I was very, very deep in that world. I grew up in the Midwest. I was the only black girl in my class. I was 5'8 in the third grade. So everyone around me was small and tiny, petite, blonde hair, blue eyes. I was opposite of all those things. And I think that's the first time that I really was grew super conscious about my body. It wasn't so much that it was like a topic in my household. I just always felt bigger than everyone around me. And so I was like, well, if I'm going to be tall, I can't really help stop myself from growing. I should be thin like a model. Like that's the thing that I should aspire to. And so as early as like 10 or 11 years old, I have like journal entries of like allowing myself only 300 calories for breakfast and only three grams of fat. I don't know where I came up with these ideas, but this is like what I have like journal entries of. And I went on my first like official diet that I can remember when I was 16. And it was because a boy in the class made a comment about like my weight in front of my peers. I was super embarrassed. I drove to the bookstore and bought the Atkins diet book. I followed it religiously to a T. I lost a bunch of weight. And then all of my peers were like, oh, my gosh, you look so good. How did you do it? What is your secret? And I was like, oh, people like me more in a smaller body. And so then that was just, you know, a yo-yo for the next 10 years. I was on yo-yo diets, always gaining and losing, regaining the same 20 or 30 pounds, doing fad diets, anything I could do to try to shrink my body. Um, And then I got to, like, my mid-20s. And I had really got into training and powerlifting. I was in the body that I would have called my dream body at that point. And to the point that like people were always complimenting me on my looks. People would walk into my gym and tell my trainer they want to look like me. So essentially, I should have been like really happy that I finally have like achieved this body of my dreams. But I was actually more miserable than I'd ever been. I had a worse relationship with food. I had a worse relationship with exercise, definitely was suffering from body dysmorphia and just had a terrible relationship with body image. And it just got to the point where I remember I was like, even going out with my friends was stressful. Going on vacation was stressful because I couldn't control every single thing that I was doing in terms of diet and exercise. And I remember this weekend, I was married at the time. We had like a weekend getaway with my in-laws. And I packed as much as food as I could for the weekend so that I wouldn't have to like eat off my quote unquote diet.
1: I just want to take a second yeah, and like, highlight that, that yeah. because
2: usually, right? When we have a positive
1: relationship with food, we go places and then we are able to interact with whatever is served to us.
2: Yes, I could not do that. Right? And so
1: at this point Mm -hmm. in your journey, you're sharing that there was a tipping point. Yeah. Right? That you couldn't take part in societal norms around eating what was on the menu.
2: Yes. And I was in the thinnest body I'd been as an adult. I was the leanest I'd ever been. I was also the strongest I'd ever been performing in powerlifting. So I packed all this food for the weekend. I ate that very quickly. And then I'm looking around the table and everyone's like just eating normal food and enjoying themselves. And it smells really good. And there was like a moment where I was like, still on like my moral high horse that like I'm healthier than these people. I have more discipline. And then I was like, no, this is really sad and I'm miserable. And also I'm going to spend the rest of my life like this if I don't change something. And this is not an enjoyable experience.
0: Chrissy, let's talk about some of the parts of your book that I think are just showstoppers and in the introduction to your book. You have these five questions. So I'm just going to read them so that listeners can try to think about how they would answer these questions. What is your current relationship to your body image? what is your earliest memory of believing that being thinner was better? Are you still carrying those stories and beliefs with you? And if so, how can you begin to release these narratives that no longer serve you? And finally, if you're seeking body liberation, what would that actually look like and feel like to you? Honestly, Chrissy, like I was stuck on one, like what is your current relationship to your body image? Because it's not even how I have a relationship to my body image. I don't even want to see the image. So when you're stuck on number one, it's hard to get through all five. So how do you give people advice on how to approach these questions?
2: For one, the questions at the beginning of the book, but then throughout the book were really important for me because body liberation and healing our relationship with body image, is it's not like a here are the five steps to get a better relationship with your body, right? And so I wrote the questions, one, because I wanted people to really sit with the material. I wanted people to use it as more than just like a quick read, but something that hopefully helps them transform their relationship with body image over time. And I think they are heavy questions, right? And when you start to think about them and really sit with them, you're like, oh, I, I don't know what my relationship with body image is right now. I don't know what these things mean. So Chrissy, w-
0: just as a quick follow-up, if you're trying to just think about the first steps, that first door that might be the hardest thing, and it's it often has to do with our thoughts, right? Our thoughts lead to our feelings, which lead to actions. What's another way to, if you've had maybe years, maybe decades of having an image or thinking about their body a certain way, what advice would you have to just even begin?
2: I think there's two things that really helped me at the beginning. Number one was just like an immense amount of compassion, because I think it is really, really hard to break up with diet culture when you've been in it for years. It's really, really hard to not judge your body when you've been judging it every day for years. And so I think self-compassion is like the number one tool I say for all of us, because we are the only person that is with ourselves every moment of every day. But we are also the hardest on ourselves, right? The things that we oftentimes say to ourselves, we would never say to a friend, a loved one, a partner, a child. We wouldn't even let them talk to themselves that way. But then we say these things to ourselves, We're our harshest critics, and we're so hard on ourselves. So if you wake up having a bad body image day, you can acknowledge I'm really feeling really shitty about my body today. And that's okay. That's the way I feel today. And I I think that when we can show ourselves grace and kindness and understand that we did not overnight develop this negative relationship with our body, we are not going to overnight flip the switch and have a suddenly a positive relationship with our body image. And then for me, I think personally, when I was like working to break up with diet culture in the beginning, it was like the smallest of things. Like I remember one of the first things I convinced myself to do and it felt like really big at the time is I was like, I'm gonna use creamer in my coffee. And that sounds so insignificant, but it was really a big deal to me at the time. And then I was like, I started using creamer in my coffee every day, I'm like, okay, all right, that's fine. I did this thing, It didn't. I didn't die, (laughs) like I feel okay. What's the next small thing? And so I think we have to also allow ourselves to make these little minute changes over time and build the confidence to be like, okay, I can do one thing that is a little bit bigger. Maybe instead of working out seven days this week, I'm gonna work out six days this week. And that's really like how I started the process for myself. Chrissy, what I really
1: hear you say, especially as a dietitian, is stepping into a more moderate space. Yes. As opposed to the extremes yes. that we're often called to live in. Mm-hmm. And so I want to tap into the educator part of you. Because yeah. I know you talk to folks. How do you help them conceptualize these things so that it's like a little actionable, you know, takeaway from when they're like as Kavita said, right, thinking about okay, that open door. Now that door is open, mm-hmm. and they're stepping into that action. Yeah, right. How do you help them really actualize some of this?
2: I don't expect anyone to read the book or to do a workshop with me, and then all of a sudden be like, "Yes, I'm ready for liberation," because that's just not realistic. And I know how long it took me to move from this place of being in diet culture to being in a space of liberation. So. The simple thing that I always tell people is catch yourself when you're saying something negative about yourself. Again, it seems small, but it's actually not. To me, that's like super significant that when you hear yourself saying something negative about that, like neutralize that thought or change the whatever the thing that you just said. And I think it's super important. I always talk about this as well is social media is such a huge part of our lives now. We have some control over like who we're following on social media, like mute people, unfollow people, step away from social media, take breaks. You know, it's not about if the person's posting something good or bad. They might be posting totally something that has nothing to do with you. But if you feel triggered, if it's affecting you and your body image in some way, like just step away from that person for a while. And then number three, I'm like really big on asking people in your community, your friend circle, your family for support and just vulnerably saying, I'm really working towards having a better relationship with body image. Like, this is how you can support me. I ask that you refrain from talking about diet culture or commenting my body. Right. And you can say that in a loving and kind way. But like, I think it's so important that when you're working on this part of your life, that your support and the people that you're spending your most time with are really supporting you in that.
0: We're going to take a break here, and when we come back, more with author, educator, and activist Chrissy King on the pitfalls in the wellness industry and who it leaves behind. She is the author of the book called The Body Liberation Project, How Understanding Racism and Diet Culture Helps Cultivate Joy and Build Collective Freedom.
1: Welcome back to Well Now. I'm Maya Feller.
0: And I'm Kavita Patel. Our guest today is educator, activist, and author Chrissy King. Chrissy, I want to turn now to the inclusion part of your work. For the past several years, you've been an educator for diversity, equity, and inclusion for the wellness industry. Let's start with kind of what the biggest problems are. What do we need to do to like be inclusive and think about everyone to have a conversation about wellness and health?
2: So I will say that I first started talking about anti-racism and inclusion in the fitness industry specifically, and then wellness as well, probably back in like 2016, which like it wasn't really a popular conversation yet. And people were kind of like, whatever, what is this person talking about? And I started that because I was working in fitness at the time and I was going to like conferences and events and it was just really disheartening because every panel that I saw Every keynote speaker was usually a white male most of the time, but definitely very few women, definitely hardly any people of color represented. And racism and discrimination actually have a physical impact on your health. (laughs) And so I'm like, how are we not talking about this, right? If you're practitioners of wellness and you are here to help people feel better in their bodies, how are we not talking about this really big part of health? Fast forward to 2020, George Floyd happens, and all of a sudden people are like, oh my gosh, racism is real. And then the CDC jumps on the bandwagon. Yes.
1: This is big here, the CDC declaring racism a public health threat. The CDC says racism in this sense isn't just discrimination, but also barriers that affect racial and ethnic groups differently. COVID-19 is the worst health crisis in a generation, but that same crisis is shedding light on another emergency, one ignored for centuries. Racism,
2: And then they say that racism is a public health issue. I'm like, uh, I've been saying this. People have been saying this way before now, but thank you for affirming that I finally was on track. So many people were like, you were right. We need your help right now. It's an emergency. And I'm like, this is no more an emergency than it was four years ago when I was talking to you about it originally. So I think... I don't understand. And I think many of us don't understand like how we are actually having conversations about wellness. And especially when we talk about bodies as well, and we're talking about anti-fat bias and fat stigma. And again, so much of this is like blaming people's health issues on them personally. Like if you ate better, if you did these things better, you would be a healthier person without looking at all the determinants of health, right? Without looking again at the impact of racism and discrimination on health, as you were already talking about like So many folks are in survival mode, they can't even think about what wellness would look or feel like. And when we're saying your body is the reason that you are having the experience you're having, versus saying it's the lack of health care, it's the fact that there's food apartheid in neighborhoods, people have. Can you explain that to our listeners? So
1: you said social determinants of health, right? And so. There, for example, the Roberts Wood Johnson Foundation talks about it as the variables that we mm-hmm. all need to express our best health, yes. right? So where we live, where we work, where we play, do mm-hmm. we have health insurance? Mm-hmm. Are we gainfully employed? Yes. Right. What does our access look like? Yeah. Right? And then you used a term food apartheid. Yeah. I'm sure many people are still using the term food desert, yes. right? Mm-hmm. Where mm-hmm. there is no food in a neighborhood that right. is quote unquote healthy. But can right. you explain to us what food apartheid means yeah. and how that plays into this conversation.
2: A food apartheid essentially is like, this is by design that certain neighborhoods don't have access to food or grocery stores, fresh produce, it's by design. It's not by accident. And when you use a term food desert, it's like it just happened that way, right? Like it's just a natural occurrence in the world. And it's like, no, it's actually not. Again, this is why I talk so much about this collective liberation piece is because when we put the onus on the individual, it's like that person didn't do a good job. That's why they're having the experience you ha- they're having versus the collective. It's like, oh, there's systemic issues at play. And that's why so many people are having the experience they're having.
0: But when we think about inclusion, there is now this like fear and maybe it goes well beyond the wellness industry, but certainly in the retail industry, there's a fear about pushing the boundaries of inclusion or equity or diversity for fear of being reproached or having some sort of pushback. And I think as an educator, what I appreciate is that you go back to like, this is just about science and facts. Like this is not about anything other than the data we know about what it means to actually have a doctor who shares the same, like, socioeconomic status, racial, ethnic background. We have that data on how much that matters for women to get screened for cancer, for example, or for women to not die after they've given birth. And we have this for everything, but it seems like we're constantly being asked to like justify why we need to have this inclusion. And especially in the wellness industry, I love it when I see someone who looks more like me, or someone who identifies a different way, non-binary, or identifies as something that I want my children to see. But that can also come back to haunt them. And and that's a problem in the United States today. That's something that we have to reckon with. How do we get this to be something that every for-profit takes seriously
2: and seizes their mandate? I think that's the hard part. And I think that's where I saw the most difficulty, especially after 2020, because There was a a period where folks felt, I think, more interested in actually changing dynamics. I think there was like a lot of factors at play there. I think there was a lot of social pressure to like do the right thing, right? The hard challenging part, though, is that if you have not been invested in the work of like anti-racism or DEI or dismantling white supremacy, because all those things go hand in hand, and I think... The DEI is kind of like the low-hanging fruit because that feels like easier to achieve, right, And when you think about what that means. But really successful DEI work can't happen without dismantling of anti-racism and white supremacy, and that's the part that is really hard for people to face, I think. So when you're talking about a company or and organization or corporations that haven't done any of this work— the change has to start from the top all the way down. And that's oftentimes where you don't have the buy-in from the folks at the top that are really hold the power and that can make the changes that actually need to happen. And so I've definitely felt like a, a waning of the interest in DEI-related topics or lack of follow-through oftentimes because it does require change. It requires hard decisions. And I think the thing that we can do collectively that will make the most change, is capitalism is the thing that drives everything, right? And so it's like our spending power and our buying power and how we're spending the money, I think, can put the most pressure on companies to do the right thing. But that requires a lot of people to be invested in how we, what companies and organizations we support and how we spend our money. Because at the end of the day, corporations care about their bottom line.
1: And I also think, too, when we're thinking specifically about systemic change in DEI, that this idea of equity yes. is a truly frightening one oh, yes. for many people. Because in order for something to be equitable, it means that there is a difference between how people are served. And as a dietitian, I always think about that, especially in relation to food apartheid, because I think about that intentional dismantling and removal of funds from lower-income neighborhoods where larger grocers don't deem those areas as valuable. So then you see this shift in what's showing up in those neighborhoods in terms of food. And so dollar stores and corner stores become the mainstays. Mm -hmm. And so then we see people actually engaging in eating more of those foods And those are the same neighborhoods where we see these disproportionate rates of high blood pressure, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease. Absolutely. And then on the flip side, Chrissy, it's interesting because there's this health conversation, right? Do you feel that in your work, some of the folks are actually coming to you to have these conversations about what is healthy and really how to talk to communities of color? Yes. And people who are marginalized about engaging in health forward behavior, have people come to you kind of looking for that?
2: Yeah, it's such a, such an interesting question because I think that I'm having the most conversations like that with other folks of color, right? Because we've all been ingrained with these same belief systems, right? And so I actually had someone write me a very not nice email about the book, A Person of Color, and was basically saying, like, as a Black person, I'm doing a disservice to a Black community By talking about body liberation because folks of color need to step away from the food. Right. And again, like the whole message is we have to all be having these conversations because I think the information that we have all received about, again, who's healthy, who's unhealthy and without like context to everything you just explained about what we have access to is what we're going to eat. Period. Right. Like, that's what you're going to eat. And so if we're not talking about these other things and it's easy to say, like, black folks just eating bad, that's why they have high blood pressure and all these other things without this larger conversation. I think that I'm oftentimes having more conversations like that with folks of color and I don't know why that is, except for that maybe white folks don't feel comfortable approaching me with that topic. I'm not really sure, because I'm sure there's white folks who think that as well. So when I talk about dismantling, yes, the systems, but it's like also like our own biases, right, and belief systems that we are also internally dismantling the things that we have been taught or we've internalized to be true. And there's just like so much work to be done in that regard.
0: So Chrissy, let's maybe get, I love just asking very practical things. You opened with telling us this story of like packing food in a cooler, which By the way, like I actually know a lot of diabetics or people who have been kind of following not even a fad like keto diet, but just like low carb. Like they just see it as impossible to try to just like be in their environment. And this includes a lot of stress. You know, no matter when people are listening to this, there's probably a birthday party, a social, a holiday, a gathering. There's something that's happening that causes them the kind of stress if they are still struggling through and trying to get to like, body liberation. What are some practical things that help people just navigate all the things that happen?
2: Yeah, I think practically speaking, I am a big fan of knowing the things that are going to make you feel most comfortable in those environments, right? Not that you're going to step into and feel wonderful, but like, how can I feel more secure going into that? For me, the worst thing when I was in diet culture, I would do this thing where I would like try to starve myself all day. So I could, quote unquote, save my calories for the end of the day. That never ended well for me. So I think if you're going to a situation like a dinner or drinks after work, or you're going to a brunch and you feel anxious about it, like eat something before that makes you feel like, okay, at least my body feels satiated. Because if you've starved yourself all day, and then you're going into a party for a work event or something, then you're just ravenous, right? So it's like, do the things that are going to make you feel most comfortable going into that situation. And just also like, I'm a really, big fan of just like naming what you're feeling, you know, like naming your whether that's through journaling or just talking out loud or calling a friend. There's so much utility just expressing what you're feeling. I used to bottle everything up. I would like not talk about it or pretend it didn't exist. And I'm like, oh, it's just really nice to just get it out of your head onto paper or whatever works for you and just say this is what I'm feeling today. And this is how I'm going to try to manage what I'm feeling today.
1: Christy, that is so beautiful. So As we close out, I want to circle back to something that you said at the top of our conversation, which is that you want folks to lead with compassion, but self-compassion. Can you take us out with a little snippet on how folks can do that?
2: Yeah, man. Self-compassion is my favorite thing to talk about because I just... (sighs) There was just a time in my life when I was so hard and so critical of myself. And not that I don't ever do that sometimes. I still do. Um, But I'm so much better at it. But there is just something so special about treating yourself with so much love and so much kindness and so much gentleness and, like, really learning to cherish yourself. And I always say that, like, falling in love with yourself is the greatest love story of all time. And, like, I mean that wholeheartedly because there's just something so special about treating yourself with that regard and knowing that you are worthy of every single thing that you want and knowing that no matter how you look on any given day it has no bearing on the person that you are and when you can just work on nourishing that relationship with yourself it just changes everything when you can treat yourself with that kind of kindness and compassion and softness and just really treat yourself with that softness and gentleness that you would treat your best friend or your partner or your child, to bestow that upon yourself is such a gift.
1: Chrissy King is a wellness educator, author, activist, and licensed fitness instructor who is actively working to dismantle the wellness system in the most positive way possible. Thank you, Chrissy.
2: Thank you for having me. This was a lovely conversation.
1: That's well now for this week. Our show is produced by Vic Whitley-Berry, Merit Jacob provided engineering support, Ben Richman is Slate's Senior Director of Podcast Operations. And Alicia Montgomery is Slate's Vice President of Audio. If you have a wellness story you would like us to cover on the show, email us at
0: wellnow@slate.com, And be sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. Join us again next Wednesday as we tackle another part of the wellness industry. I'm
1: Kavita Patel. And I'm Maya Feller. And thanks for listening.